1 Thessalonians chapter number 5, verse number 1, the Word of God says this, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. So as we've been moving through the book of 1 Thessalonians, we have followed a theme. The book of 1 Thessalonians, of course, the central theme of it is uh, the rapture of the church. But we have noticed how that this truth informs and impacts the behavior and character and conduct of the believer. We've noticed how that it is a saving truth. It is a stabilizing truth. It is a stimulating truth. It is a strengthening truth. And here in chapter number 5 tonight, we're going to consider how that it is a sanctifying truth. How that it sets apart and cleanses our behavior and causes us to live differently in this world. You know, First John chapter 3 tells us that every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he also is pure. So belief in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus uh, ought to be a, uh, a doctrine and a belief that changes the way that we live and the way that we behave. The lesson tonight is basically going to be divided into three portions. Verses 1 through 11 feature a word of explanation regarding some of the truths that Paul had prior disclosed and delivered unto them. Afterwards, there is a word of exhortation. How are we to live in light of that? And then finally, there is a word of conclusion in the last few verses of the chapter. In this word of explanation, uh, the Apostle Paul deals with two different things. The first thing he deals with is some significant contrast in the life of the believer versus those that are lost. The following discussion climaxes in the statement that those who participate in the rapture will be delivered from the coming wrath. The key to understanding this passage is to consider carefully the personal pronouns involved in the discussion. Mark them carefully. Note these two different classes. There are those that are addressed as I, ye, you, yourselves, we, and us. It would uh, serve us well to make note of that. I don't know if you make a habit of marking in your Bible. I don't have strong feelings about that one way or the other. But if you do, to make note of those. These pronouns embrace believers, those that are candidates for the rapture, those that are involved in the rapture. Paul continues using these pronouns from the preceding paragraph in chapter 4, which described the rapture itself. You remember he closes chapter 4 by saying, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And then when we get into chapter number 5, it's a continuation. He says, But of the times and the seasons present. He's still talking to believers. In contrast with this group, Paul referred to another group by using the personal pronouns they and them. You notice they're exclusive in nature. Paul's not including himself in this group. By simply coloring them in your Bible using two different colors, you can highlight the contrast very quickly. Saints and sinners will thus stand out in evident contrast. Saints destined to be caught away from the coming wrath, and sinners destined to be caught up in the maelstrom of coming wrath. Now, in dealing with these contrasts, he gives three different categories uh, that, uh, that regard, or two different categories, excuse me, that these contrasts are dealing with. First is a contrast regarding beliefs in verses 1 through 6. And he has three thoughts under that. The first thing he notes in our text is that saints are directed by Scripture in the way that they live and interpret the world. Verse number one, he says, of the times and the seasons, brethren, and again, notice that word brethren, he's writing to saved people, of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. This undoubtedly refers to both the vast body of eschatological truth contained in the Old Testament and the Lord's own prophetic teaching now enshrined 
in the gospel. So Paul, in other words, refers back to a prior revelation. He says, I don't have to teach you anything new. I've already taught these things unto you. In the course of Paul's instruction of his Thessalonian converts, he had seemingly gone over all of that ground, giving them to the benefit of his own insights. He had taught them about those times and seasons that will eventually culminate in the coming of the day of wrath. Times refers to the various time periods involved in God's dealings with the human race. In other words, uh, as in Hebrews 1, God has spoken at sundry times as well as in divers' manners. Uh, Paul had doubtless taught his converts to distinguish between these various times. These times are what we now call dispensations. So you'll find the word dispensation in the Bible, but not necessarily referring distinctly to there being different time periods throughout human history. We've used that word descriptively to denote what the Bible speaks of more colloquially as times, as different ages uh, throughout human history. Seasons refers to the special characteristics, features, highlights, and signs that mark these varying uh, times, these varying ages. Many of these things regarding the end times are becoming clearer to us now that we are approaching the end of time. The rebirth of the state of Israel, the rise of Russia, the impending revival of the Roman Empire, the dawn of the nuclear age, the persistence of malignant anti-Semitism, global catastrophes, the emergence of a pornographic and sodomite society, the apostasy of the professing church, the spread of terrorism, persecution, famine, and earthquakes are all features of the end times. These are the seasons that herald is coming. And you know, that's not unfamiliar to us. A season is defined by certain characteristics, be it a season as far as weather-wise, uh, atmospherically, winter is defined by some things. I know East Tennessee ain't the place to be talking that way, because you never know. But typically, seasons are defined by certain characteristics. It's cold, or it's rainy, or it's hot, or it's dry. Uh, and even seasons of life that you're in. We speak of that referring to certain characteristics. If a person is in the younger season of their life, we speak of them having good health, a lot of times not having as much wisdom in their decisions, having a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of ambition. When people get in an older season of life, uh, the converse is often true. They have wisdom, they have discernment, but often they lack maybe the passion or ambition that they once had had. So this is not unfamiliar language to us. Uh, these are the seasons, in other words, that have been referenced that herald his coming. The word used is the word kairos. It refers to the characteristics of a period, as of a harvest, for instance, in Matthew 14.20 and Acts 14.17 in Galatians 6.9. It's also used of the fulfillment of prophecy in Luke chapter 1 and verse 20, Acts 3.19 and 1 Peter 1.11. In other words, Paul felt no need to go over such ground again. He refers his converts back to a prior revelation. But then he speaks of their understanding as being a perfect revelation. It says in verse 12 or verse 2, for yourselves, there's that personal pronoun again, know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. The Lord's coming for his church is likened to the coming of a thief. A thief comes unexpectedly when people are asleep or when they are busy and occupied with other things. The day of the Lord to which Paul refers here is the subject of extensive Old Testament revelation. There are 17 references to it in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is sometimes found combined with such words as wrath and vengeance. It's referred to four times in the New Testament. Here in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, 2 Peter 3.10, and Revelation 1.10. Right now we are living in man's days. It's described in uh, 1 Corinthians 4.3, the time of man's judgment and man's dominion in this world. Right now man exalts himself and tries to rule God out of his own world. In the day of the Lord, however, the Lord reasserts his claim over this planet. It is primarily a day of wrath and judgment. It does, however, extend on into the millennial age and the dramatic climax and end of that magnificent era. The focal point of the day of the Lord is the apocalypse or the book of Revelation and the judgment that follows the rapture, especially the terrible vile judgments when God will pour out his undiluted wrath upon this world that murdered his son. The Thessalonians knew perfectly about these things. The word that Paul used, it means accurately. Luke used the word to describe his own personal investigations into and knowledge of the story of the Lord Jesus in Luke 1.3. 
Matthew used the word to describe the instructions that Herod gave to the wise men when it says he inquired of them diligently as to exactly when the guiding star first appeared and urged them to search diligently, again that word, for the young child and then bring him the coveted information. Paul had taught his Thessalonian converts with painstaking care. And as a result, they had an accurate knowledge of the salient features of the day of the Lord. Not all of the period, however, even that leading up to the outpouring of God's wrath, is filled with strife and turmoil. Paul reminds them of this next. So the first thing that he mentions is that saints are directed by Scripture. What we believe, we believe because the Word of God has taught it. Secondly, he notes that in these days and on into the rest of the end times, sinners are deluded by Satan. Notice first off the nature of their deception. He says, for when they, again, that, that personal pronoun, he's talking about a group that does not involve believers. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Uh, notice first off the nature of their deception. The judgment era that opens with the removal of the church is not entirely without its years of promise, but they will be deceptive. A brief survey of the period covered by the revelation underlines this fact. First, the seals will be poured out, resulting in a world ruined by man. There will be false Christs, wars, famines, pestilences, and persecutions dwarfing all of those of history. Men's hearts will be full of horror and alive with terror. Then the trumpets are to be blown, resulting in a world ruled by Satan. The Antichrist will be revealed. He will bring order out of chaos. He will unite the European continent, strengthen the Atlantic Alliance, and impose a Roman peace upon the Western world. The world will hail his power, policies, and very person. They will look upon him as a political and economic genius. Peace will seem to have come to the world at last. Economic prosperity and world trade will flourish. People will cry peace and safety and will congratulate themselves on the new order that has come. But they will be deceived. The Antichrist will not be content. He will be determined to rule the whole world from Rome. As a move uh, toward that end, the Antichrist will sign a treaty with Israel. It will be a seven-year pact that unconditionally guarantees the security of the state of Israel and authorizes the Jews to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. The Muslim nations uh, will be warned on peril of invasion and punishment to leave Israel alone. The stage is being set for a combined Russo-Islamic invasion of Israel. That invasion will take place, Ezekiel 38 says, when my people of Israel dwelleth safely. This condition will be true of Israel at no other time before the final coming of Christ. The earth basks in the new age. Israel is at peace. Serious troubles, though, will be brewing. We can well imagine Muslim reaction when the Jews seize the temple site and start work on their temple. Intimidated at first by the Antichrist's power, the Muslim world will seize with mounting rage. They will appeal to Russia. In a desperate bid to regain world dominance, Russia and its client states will launch a massive invasion of Israel, only to meet the disaster described by the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 38. The Antichrist, now all-powerful, will call on all nations to submit to his rule. The world will lie in his lap. By one master stroke, he will have eliminated his two chief rivals, Russia and Islam. Even China will be cowed. Now, indeed, the world will say peace and safety. Let me just make this passing comment that I wish I could say more, but for time's sake, I won't. I feel like sometimes we have a very distorted perspective about what that would look like to a, an unregenerate, unsaved world. We look at it and view it as being this uh, devastating time of torment and torture. That will come during the tribulation period. But first will come a season and period of time where it looks as though mankind has finally achieved the oasis that he has so long desired. It'll finally look that he is, has built this utopia and it will all be attributed to this man that we know is the man of sin, that the Bible calls the Antichrist, but that to them will merely be their false Christ, their Messiah, that they're trusting in. They'll say, peace and safety, we finally achieve. But then, notice the nature of their doom. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Again, notice that personal pronoun. Not talking about believers, but talking about someone outside of believers. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as prevail upon a woman with child. And they, you see it again, shall not escape. Men will heave a sigh of relief. At last, a central world government exists that is strong enough to enforce peace and ensure worldwide prosperity. But they'll be deceived again. Because what the Antichrist really wants will be global worship and world rule. He will seize the rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem. 
He will put his image in the holy place and demand that everyone have his mark, the famous mark of the beast. The Jewish remnant and the converts of the two witnesses and the 144,000 witnesses will refuse to comply. Determined now to rid the world of every last lingering vestige of Judeo-Christian influence and teaching, the Antichrist will launch a massive global holocaust. His aim will be to exterminate the Jews and crush all resistance once and for all. Doubtless, too, the Holocaust will include the extermination of all other possible political and religious rivals to the Antichrist's power and plans. This will be the Great Tribulation, also called the time of Jacob's trouble that is referred to elsewhere in Scripture. It will be a bloodbath of persecution, the like of which the world, in all its uh, long and violent history, has never seen. Note that Paul's reference does not include the we and the thus. It refers to the they and the them. The Antichrist, however, will have reckoned without God. The vials of God's wrath will be poured out, resulting in a world rescued by God. The outpouring of the first four vials will undermine the Antichrist's power structure. He will lose his grip. The eastern half of his empire will break away, mobilize against him, cross the Euphrates, and march to Megiddo. The Antichrist will mobilize the West. The stage will be set for the return of the Lord in power and great glory. Paul develops the story of the Antichrist in his second letter to the Thessalonians. Again, let me make this passing comment. I think for me, in my uh, misunderstanding, my ignorance, and my wrong perspective, I always thought growing up when I thought of the battle of, the Army, uh, of Armageddon, of here's the Antichrist with all of his armies, and he's just sitting down there waiting for Jesus to show up so he can fight it. But that is not the image that's portrayed. Rather, what you see is a, a, a embittered conflict between the East and the West that will meet there in the Valley of Megiddo. By the way, the place that Napoleon said was the world's greatest natural battlefield. And there they will, they will fight, there they will strive, and into that bedlam the Lord will return to wrestle Israel. I sort of likened it almost to two wolves chewing over a rib bone, and then the Lion of Judah is going to show up and take it away from both of them. In other words, he comes back to rescue Israel for himself. We could develop this thought thoroughly, but I would merely say this, that in all world governments, because there is such a presence of Jewish interest in world governments, what you find is a conflicting vision for what Israel will one day be. There is a very nationalist perspective of Israel. For instance, uh, not long ago, B.B. Netanyahu was put out of office. He was very nationalist in his perspective of Israel. He envisioned Israel as... Uh, Boy, I'm trying to be careful here, as influencing the world from Jerusalem. Then there is a very globalist Marxist perspective on Israel's dominance that regards the idea of, of Jews living all over the world and holding and pulling levers of power from places of position. Much of modern-day geopolitics can be explained when you realize that that conflict, what will Israel's power and existence look like, is what shapes the way that nations move today. And the battle of Armageddon fundamentally comes down to those competing ideas of nationalism versus globalism. And that's what you're going to see at the battle of Armageddon. Into that fray, Christ will return to take back and they'll find out it's not going to be a communist state, it's not going to be a nationalist state, it's going to be a theocracy with him sitting on the throne. So uh, we see here that sinners are deluded by Satan. Next we note that saints are different in spirit from sinners. Paul now contrasts the essential differences between saints and sinners, between children of the day and those of the night. Verse number four, we see that their condition is different. He says, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Twice the personal pronoun is emphatic, ye and you. The Holy Spirit thus draws emphatic attention to the marked difference between the nature and destiny of Christians and the nature and doom of unbelievers. Paul is now talking to brethren, to the Lord's people. You know, darkness is used in Scripture in various ways. It can be physical, Matthew twenty-seven forty-five; intellectual, Romans two nineteen; moral, Romans thirteen twelve; or spiritual, Acts twenty-six eighteen. As it is used here, the word refers primarily to the world's abysmal ignorance of the purposes of God. The word is also used to describe Satan and his aides as the unseen rulers of the affairs of this world in Ephesians 6.12. It's also used to describe the horrors of a lost eternity in Matthew 8.12. The word is nearly always used in a bad sense. The Lord's coming for his own is likened here to the coming of a thief. 
We are not in the dark about the coming judgments on this world. We will not be overtaken by them. We see clearly what is coming. That day will not overtake us as a thief in the night. On the contrary, the rapture is going to overtake us first. Not only is their condition different, but their character is different. Verse 5, he says, Ye are all children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Night and day are opposites. Light and darkness are opposites. The light of the world is Jesus. Darkness is simply the absence of light. The Lord warned his enemies in uh, the book of John, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of the light. And John added, these things spake Jesus, and departed, and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. We became children of the light and children of the day when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And his nature is imparted to us by the Holy Spirit. God has sharp words for unbelievers. John 3.18, he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The destiny of the children of light, though, is quite different. Jesus said, he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And Solomon wrote, the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness, in Proverbs chapter 4. Our hope and destiny is quite different from that of the unbeliever. Then we see that their conduct is different. Verse number 6. He says, therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. We've met the word others that Paul uses here before. Paul reminded the Thessalonians in chapter 4 and verse 13, ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope, referring to those outside of Christ. The word is not alos, in other words, those who are of the same kind, nor is it heteros, those who are of a different kind. But rather it is loipos, meaning the remaining one, or in the plural, those who are left behind. It refers to the rest of mankind who stand in contrast with the saved. It can be understood as them that are without here in chapter 4 and verse 13 and in Ephesians 2, 3, where Paul writes this, Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. All that has now been changed, though, for the believer. So Paul says, let us not sleep. When a person is asleep, he looks like a, a, a dead person. From a few feet away, a sleeping person cannot be distinguished from a dead person. We're not to be like those who are dead in trespasses and sins. People ought to, even at a distance from our life, be able to tell that we are markedly different. We are to be very much alive. We're not to sleep as Jonah did when the storm was raging and the mariners were in peril of their lives. We must be sober, Paul says, in contrast with Lot in the Old Testament, who was both drunk and dishonored, even when the very world about him was a smoking ruin. We, in light of this truth, are to be living differently. So regarding beliefs, there are some significant contrasts. Then regarding behavior. Notice first in verse 7, a look at lost people. He says, for they, we find that word again, that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Here we have a look at their delusion. The word for sleep here is the word kathudo. It occurs 22 times in Scripture, and it is rarely used of death. Rather, the word suggests composing oneself to sleep. The act involves a measure of deliberateness. The word is occasionally used metaphorically to illustrate carnal indifference to spiritual things on the part of believers. In Mark's account, for instance, of the Lord's Olivet Discourse, he concludes with this challenge of the Lord. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. Same word. And what I say unto you, I say unto you all watch. This is a clear call for a pre-rapture alertness. Now is no time to be careless and lethargic about spiritual things. The truth of the Lord's coming is intended to keep us alert and watchful. Then we see their destruction. He says, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. The Lord also warns against drunkenness, another sin of the indifferent. A man who is asleep is quite unaware of what is going on. 
A man who is drunk has lost his capacity to react properly to what is going on. Many are the warnings in Scripture against drunkenness. Far from becoming drunk, Ephesians 5.18 and 19 says Christians are to be filled with the Spirit. So in other words, in looking at lost people, they are oblivious and they lack the capacity to respond in the right way to these truths. But what about a look at the Lord's feet? Verse 8, he says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. First, we notice their alertness in contrast with lost people who are asleep to the realities, spiritual realities, and drunkenly incapable of properly responding to them, incapacitated by their own wicked lifestyle, the Lord's people are to be sober. They are to have all of their faculties about them and all of their spiritual nature alert. Then we notice some armor is mentioned. Paul borrows some pieces of a Roman soldier's armor to illustrate the fact that a war is on, light versus darkness, day against night. He talks about the breastplate of faith, the helmet of salvation. The three cardinal Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope are to be in evidence in our life. The breastplate is that which protects the heart. The helmet protects the head. In other words, our affections and our thoughts are to be kept protected from the enemy. We're not to love the things that the world has to offer. We're also not to allow ourselves to be seduced by its philosophies, its attitudes, and its attractions when speaking of the helmet of salvation. I would also make this statement. Inasmuch as we interact with the world and perceive the world and interpret the world around us, we should always do so having in mind that our destiny is not with this ruined and doomed world, but rather it is in the hope of salvation that one day we will be rescued and raptured out of this world. In other words, as you watch the news and you say, oh, all of it's just going downhill. Not you and I, if we're saved by the grace of God, we ain't going down, we're going up. Amen? So having the hope of salvation to protect your mind from those thoughts. Then we see not only some significant contrasts, but we see some significant conclusions that are made. Paul now arrives at the second great climax in this tremendous revelation regarding the Lord's second coming. The first great climax is in connection with the truth of the rapture, when the dead and living saints will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The second great climax is in connection with the time of the rapture. It will be in time to save us from wrath. Noah went into the ark before the flood came. Enoch was caught away in the rapture before the antediluvian wickedness came to a head. Lot was removed from Sodom before the fire fell, and the church will be removed from earth before the end times troubles begin. Notice two things here. First, we see our great escape from woe. What shall we escape from? Verse 9, for God hath not appointed us, again notice that personal pronoun in contrast to the they and them, God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. There are people appointed to experience that wrath, the they and the them of the passage. But those he describes by the pronouns ye, we, and us, going right back to the actual revelation of the rapture itself in chapter 4, are to escape the wrath. The wrath here is not the eternal wrath referred to by Paul in his letter to the Romans when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That is God's eternal wrath against sin. The Lord Jesus has already saved us from that wrath. John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The wrath here, rather, is that wrath mentioned at the end of the seal judgments, described so graphically under the vile judgments in the book of Revelation. We could call it end times wrath. That this is so determined is by the context here in First Thessalonians, which is concerned not with the second, or which is concerned with the second coming of Christ, not with the eternal state of the law. Wrath is a feature of the end times judgments, and it is a feature of a lost eternity. We must always allow the context to determine which aspect of the Lord's wrath is in view. We've already noted the two words used for wrath in the book of Revelation. Here it might be appropriate to depict the kind of world it will be from which we are to be snatched away. Consequent upon the rapture, the breaking of the seals will witness all divine restraint removed from the world. Wickedness will be allowed to come to a head. No longer will there be any conscience. Pornography and pervasion will walk around, cheered on by a godless world. Wickedness and war will encircle the world. Earthquakes and epidemics, persecution and panic, famine and fear will be epidemic. The lost themselves will see in these things tokens of the wrath of God. Jesus himself foretold the need for such days to be shortened if anyone was to remain alive in Matthew 24, 22. 
A brief respite will come with the unveiling of Satan's man, but it will not last. He's called the man of sin, and he will be the very incarnation of wickedness. Once he has sufficient power, he will throw off his benevolent mask. He will have goals to rule the world and unite mankind in worship of Satan. To this end, he will wage war, sign deceptive treaties, and kill off his rivals. The Roman Catholic Church will be wiped out. The Russians will be all but annihilated, and Islam will be crushed. The Jews and post-rapture Gentile believers will be targeted for extermination. The shadows of Armageddon will lengthen every day. The world will be caught up in the throes of repeated judgments from on high, all culminating in the outpoured wrath of the Lamb. The terror, the horror, the hatred, and the despair will be totally unrelieved. Then to climax it all, the Lord himself will return in person, in flaming fire, to make war on his own account and to tread out the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has promised to save his church from all of that. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, Paul said. The word is not emphatic. It indicates a full and direct negation, absolute and independent of all conditions. We're not appointed to go through the tribulation or any part of it. No Christian has an appointment with either God's eternal wrath or his dispensational wrath. Years ago, Dr. Ralph Kuyper, speaking at the Moody Bible Institute, parried an old hymn. The new words that he told illustrate how those who would teach that the church will be in the tribulation rob us of our blessed hope. His version went something like this. Sad day, sad day, Jesus won't come today. So gloomy and worried and fretful be. The beast and the false prophet we soon shall see. Sad day, sad day, Jesus won't come today. There is a very good reason why God's wrath will never touch a child of God, regardless of whether that wrath is temporal or eternal. The law of the burnt offering in the book of Leviticus suggests this very reason. Listen carefully to this quote from Leviticus chapter 6. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night unto the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh, and take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed with the burnt offering on the altar. And he shall put them beside the altar. He shall put off his garments and put on other garments, and carry forth the ashes without the camp unto a clean place. And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. <laughs> and the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it. And he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. The law of the burnt offering was concerned with two things, the ashes and the fire. The fire was never to go out. God's wrath against sin is as hot and as fierce today as when it fell in all of its fury on the Savior, when he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. We shall never know what Jesus suffered during those three dark and dreadful hours, when he who knew no sin was made sin for us. Millions of people reject the sacrifice of Calvary, and that aggravates their doom. Of them, God says in Hebrews chapter number 10, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. It goes on in verse 31 to say it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fire of God's wrath burns hot indeed for them, and that fire never goes out. That's one lesson of the law of the burnt offering. God's wrath has been kindled and it never goes out. But by contrast, reference is made to the ashes of the burnt offering. The ashes were infinitely precious to God. Indeed, everything about the burnt offering was precious to God because everything about it spoke of the Lord Jesus as being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Because it was precious to God, it had to be precious to the priests and should be precious to us. The priest arrayed in linen was to gather the ashes carefully when the fire had done its work. Then he changed his clothes, took those ashes outside the camp, and carefully put them to rest in a clean place. Now, what was the significance of all this care and concern for the ashes? Well, you know, we can stir a fire and get sparks and bring a fire back to a white-hot heat. But we can stir ashes forever and we'll get nothing. In other words, it's impossible to stir God's wrath against one of his own, one for whom that fire has already burnt on the Lord Jesus Christ. God's wrath, so far as his own are concerned, has been completely burned out at Calvary. Nothing is left but ashes. This holds true whether one is referring to his end times wrath as here or to his eternal wrath as elsewhere. 
This point leads Paul to add a further word. He says, we have not been appointed to wrath. On the contrary, we have been appointed to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. The word salvation is the word soteria, and it means literally deliverance. Sometimes the word is used to depict national deliverance, as in Acts 7.25. Sometimes it is used to denote personal deliverance, as in Acts 27.34. It is, of course, frequently used to depict our spiritual and eternal salvation from sin. Here it is clearly used to declare the deliverance of believers at the perusia. That's the context. At the coming of Christ from all the horrors of the end time. So we see not only what we shall escape, but we see why. Why is that? Verse 10, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. The fact is that Calvary covers it all. Our participation in the rapture and the deliverance that it brings from the terrors of the ensuing judgment age does not in the final analysis depend on whether we are watchful. That will determine our position in the kingdom, but not our participation in the rapture. Our deliverance from end times wrath by means of this rapture is secured for us by the Lord Jesus who died for us. It's the same law as the law of burnt offerings. That is what secures our great escape from wrath and woe. Uh, The wrath of God has already been extinguished in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ for believers. Then we see not only our escape from woe, but we see our escape from worry. Verse 11, he says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. It's hard to see how we can comfort one another with the assurance that we are all going to go through the great tribulation, whether in whole or in part. The word for edify is the word orikodomio, and it means to build a house. It's used to depict the development of spiritual growth and the building of Christian character. It implies that spiritual progress results from patient and diligent labor. In other words, all believers are to help develop Christian characters in others in view of the Lord's return. Now let's read verses 12 down to verse 22, and we'll move on. He says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. In these verses we find a word of exhortation that is given to believers. And it basically is comprised of three categories. First, a word of exhortation as to our values in verses 12 and 13. When he talks about, brethren, we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. The teaching of Paul concerning the rapture has to do with the spiritual church. The actual life and growth of the believer during this age, however, is expressed through the local church. The teaching here now concentrates on the local church. Each local church is to be a microcosm of the spiritual church at large. Paul concentrates first on church leaders and what they do. Uh, He says that they labor among you, they are over you in the Lord, they admonish you. The properly appointed leaders of the local church are vested with authority. The church is not a dictatorship, and it is not a democracy. It is a theocracy. The Holy Spirit qualifies and calls people to the roles of leadership. They are to be known. The word is oida. It carries the idea of recognizing, acknowledging, appreciating, and valuing. Spiritual people will quickly recognize those whom God has raised up to evangelize, teach, and pastor the flock. Those who refuse to acknowledge such leadership... Uh, label themselves as carnal. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 denotes this. The characteristic of a true spiritual leader is that he labors. The word used carries the idea of toil that results in weariness. Those who have accepted a role of leadership in the local church are expected to work and to work hard. There's no room for laziness in the Lord's work. Think about this. Moses so wore himself out that when he was finally persuaded to delegate some of his responsibilities, it took no less than 70 men to pick up the duties that he laid down. Paul continues with church leaders and what they deserve. He says, we are to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Holding them in highest honor uh, is another way to put it. After this warm commendation of the elders, Paul adds a brief note calling for peace to reign in the church. He says, be at peace among yourselves. So we see a word of exhortation as to our values, then as to our virtues. 
Paul now begins a short staccato series of statements in which he fires off a number of brief but pregnant and memorable statements regarding Christian conduct. The whole theme of the epistle being the second coming of Christ, we can surely take for granted that these admonitions are given to prepare us for that anticipated event. There are two categories here. The first, broadly speaking, is there are some people to be helped in the local church. Paul suggests four kinds of people who often present problems to the local church and how we are to deal with them. First, he speaks of those who are disorderly. He says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. You could almost say in light of the Lord's coming that each of these exhortations could be prefaced by the Lord's, by the statement the Lord is coming. In other words, the Lord is coming and he's coming to summon the saints to the judgment seat. He's coming to impose law and order on human life and society and to rule the nations with a rod of iron. In light of that, we need to warn folks that lawlessness has no part in the Christian life. The context here has to do with the rule and respect of those whom the Holy Spirit has placed in positions of authority in the local church. The authority of elders is not political. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit raises them up, and the Holy Spirit now tells these men to exercise their God-given authority by warning the disorderly. In other words, the house of God should not be a house of chaos, but rather it should be a house that is ordered by the truth of the Word of God. Then he speaks to those who are despondent. He says, comfort the feeble-minded. The word used literally means those of little or small soul. It refers to those who are dispirited or faint-hearted. It really has nothing to do with mental deficiency. In other words, they are the opposite of the unruly. The unruly are too sure of themselves, and the despondent lack the confidence needed to continue serving the Lord. They cannot take criticism. Off they go in a huff the moment someone disagrees with them or hurts their feelings. They're afraid of persecution. They worry about the future. The word here used for comfort means to speak with someone. In other words, that is to speak kindly or soothingly. It suggests pacifying someone, speaking persuasively and tenderly. The faint-hearted need constant encouragement. Let me pause here and make a statement. Uh, I have often, often in ministry been um, with good intention criticized for tolerating people that are feeble-minded. I've sometimes been viewed as being someone that is catering to them, is, is, is too patient. Preacher, I wouldn't put up with that. I wouldn't live with that and deal with that. And, and I appreciate people looking out for my frame of mind and well-being and interests. But let us never forget that, listen, those people are people Christ died for as well. Uh, the people that annoy you sometimes, the people that say, well, they're silly, they're foolish, why do we tolerate, why do we put up? I'll tell you why, because Christ died for them. Because Christ loves them. And because there's people more spiritually than me that would look at me and consider me to be feeble-minded. People more spiritual than you that would look at you and consider you to be feeble-minded, of small soul or of a shallow spiritual depth. Listen, we ought to look at those people and say those are the very people God put us here to love on and to try to encourage and to try to comfort and to try to support. We see those who are despondent. Then we see those who are dependent. It says support the weak. The word refers to those without strength. You know, it's interesting. The philosophy that the world takes uh, has takes little enough account of the weak. The devilish doctrine of Darwin is what the public schools teach and what the media promotes. Darwin's doctrine is summarized by a single phrase, the survival of the fittest. In Paul's day, Roman Greeks had much the same attitude. It was not until Christ came that the world got to see at large uh, exhibited care and a concern, regardless of religion, race, or response, for the failures and misfits of society. Christianity taught the world to value human life. Christianity built hospitals, asylums, orphanages. Our modernistic society has forgotten the debt that it owes to the Judeo-Christian ethic. The word used for support here means to cleave to or to faithfully care for or to keep close by. In other words, we must not march on heedlessly rejoicing in our strength. That's not the way the Christian army goes to war. It never abandons the weak. The Lord was always willing to stay close by the weak. Much of his ministry was concerned with healing the sick, feeding the hungry, defending those who were unable to fend off their foes. And I would say this, uh, since the world has outsourced the care of the unfortunate to government instead of God's people, society has been no better for it, but only worse for it. 
There's been no accountability with it. There's mass abuse and waste and, and, and fraud and corruption involved in all these things. Government's answer is always throw more money at it because it can't acknowledge the spiritual problems that are endemic in the condition of man. That's when the people of God, before they got hamstringed out by government programs, had an open door of utterance to minister in that way in people's lives with authority, people were a lot better off. Now, we could talk at length about the difference between then and today, but suffice it to say that supporting the weak, trying to help those uh, that are without strength, is a function of the New Testament church. It's to be done with care. It's to be done with accountability and integrity. And it's to be done with spiritual motivation and goals. But nevertheless, it's something that the church does indeed do. Then he speaks of those who are different. He says, be patient toward all men. The word for patient here means to be long-tempered, in contrast to being short-tempered. The idea of long-suffering implies some sort and some form of provocation or even outright persecution. God exercises this kind of long-suffering towards sinners, a long-suffering that the unsaved often misinterpret, Peter says. Within the fellowship of the local church, we find all kinds of people. Many of them are, by nature, quite incompatible. They'd never be found grouped together anywhere else. In the fellowship of the church, doctors, lawyers, and professionals rub shoulders with plumbers, clerks, and shop hands. Cultured socialites sit down with farmers and fishermen. People of opposite temperaments think to work together for the cause of Christ. Young and old, wise and foolish, rich and poor are all thrown together and united by the mystical bonds of Christ. Nor is this just a casual association of people brought together temporarily by some fortuitous chain of circumstances. We're bound together by a common faith, the blood of Christ and the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. We are members of Christ's body and members one of another. With so many and varied natural differences and with each person at a different stage of spiritual development, no wonder Paul calls for long-suffering for patience towards all men. In other words, if you've got to go to church in a place where you're never going to find anybody with a different perspective or worldview, you're not going to go to a church that's going and growing for the Lord. Because inevitably, as we win people to Christ, we're going to come across people that disagree with us about things, people that either need to grow and develop in their spiritual walk. Sometimes we're going to find people that we need to grow and catch up with. But the point is, a dose of grace and patience is fundamental to a loving and functioning church. We ought not always be ready to jump at some disagreement, but rather to be patient with each other. So we see some people to be helped. Then we see some principles to be helped. He says this, See that none render evil for evil unto any man. You know, I think about Jesus when I think of this verse. Jesus loved Judas just as much as he loved John. He loved Annas, the high priest, just as much as he loved Andrew. He loved Pilate just as much as he loved Peter. He loved the man who spat in his face just as much as he loved the woman who washed his feet with tears. He loved the dying thief who went to paradise. And he loved the other thief who died still cursing him. He would have saved him too. Only he wouldn't let him. He rendered evil to no man. Even on the cross, one of our Lord's prayers was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Our rule of life, we see what is to be prohibited. We're never to render evil for evil. It's tempting sometimes. The world system pressures us to do it sometimes, but the biblical principle remains the same. But we see what is to be pursued. He says, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and all men. The Lord Jesus ever followed what was good toward both his own disciples and all men. In affirming all of these injunctions for holy living, Paul is reminding us of a spiritual principle. Listen carefully to this. Only Jesus can live the Christian life. He lived it for 33 and a half years. He went about doing good, was Peter's summary of the life of Christ. Nor did he live his extraordinary life on different terms than those required of us. He was always absolutely and completely God. However, the Lord Jesus made himself wholly available to his Father in all situations. He did not draw upon his own deity. He recognized that every demand upon him was a demand upon his Father. The Father correspondingly made himself wholly available to Jesus. The Holy Spirit was the mediator between all that Jesus was as man and all that the Father was as God. We too, as regenerated believers, must make ourselves wholly available to the Lord Jesus. Every demand upon us is a demand upon the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus then makes himself wholly available unto us, and the Holy Spirit is the mediator between all of our human needs and all of the Lord's divine enabling. It's a simple fact of Scripture, common sense, and daily experience that apart from Christ, 
It is utterly impossible for even the sincerest born-again believer to live the kind of life that God demands in his own strength. So we see some statements about our virtue and then some statements about our victory. Uh, Paul uh, begins to deal. These statements become sharper and, 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 and more direct. We could maybe say it this way. In verse 16, we see a statement about praise. He says, rejoice evermore. We could maybe say it this way. The Lord is coming. And that should be enough cause for rejoicing. There's no point in looking at the long time that has now elapsed since the promise was given. He could have come at any time in all of that lengthy period, but he didn't. So now the promise is nearer than it has ever been. And we're to rejoice. Those to whom this admonition was first addressed were suffering persecution. No matter, let them rejoice. When they read the words rejoice evermore in this letter, the Thessalonian believers might have been tempted to say, well, it's all very well for him. He's safe there in Corinth. But here we are in the midst of persecution in Thyatira. Paul could have said back to them, do you want to see my back? Maybe some of them had seen it where he'd been beaten in Philippi. When Paul wrote his epistle, full to overflowing with rejoicing to the Philippians, he was in prison in Rome awaiting trial before Nero. He was facing the real possibility of a death sentence, for Nero had changed for the worse since the day Paul had appealed to his Roman citizenship. Rejoice evermore, he said. After all, the praising person is the prevailing person. What can the enemy do to the man who is so full of joy, the second fruit of the Spirit, that no matter what happens, his soul overflows with song? Then he gives a word about prayer. He says, verse 17, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. About our prayer life, he denotes two things. One, that we have access at all times. Pray without ceasing, he says. The door to the throne room of the universe has been thrown wide open to us. We can obtain instant audience day or night. We can have boldness to enter in to the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Indeed, God urges us to pray without ceasing. We can pray with the upward glancing of the eye. We can pray when waiting for a bus or when driving the car. We can pray as we meet someone or say goodbye. Prayer does not have to be sermonic or even structured. When Nehemiah was given his golden opportunity to ask the Persian emperor for permission to go to the promised land to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Scripture says, Then the king said unto me in Nehemiah chapter 2, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, Send me unto the city that I may build it. We can be sure that Nehemiah, when he prayed, did not pray like Solomon when he was dedicating the temple, or like Daniel when he was confessing Israel's sins. No, indeed, it did not even need audible words spoken out loud. God can read even the unformed words of a praying heart. In other words, as we pray without ceasing, we're talking as much about an attitude of prayer as we are the activity of prayer. And I don't mean to suggest that I'm talking about some abstract condition of the heart, but what I'm saying is to stay daily in conversation with the Lord. We ought to talk to Him like He's there, because He's there. And if we talk to Him like He's there, we'll talk to Him without ceasing. Then we see that we are to have acceptance in all things. It says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's no use for us to pray, not my will but thine be done, and then to rebel against what God sends by way of answer. The point is that God expects us that we shall rise triumphant over our circumstances. You know, there's always something for which to be thankful. We notice, too, that the apostle says, in everything give thanks. He does not say, for everything give thanks. The preposition here is in, E-N, and, and it denotes being or remaining within with the primary idea of rest and continuance. It has regard to place and space. For instance, Jesus told his disciples, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. When Jesus found himself being pressured by thronging crowds, he withdrew himself into, same word, the wilderness and prayed. It also refers to a sphere of action. When we read of Herod that he had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison. Paul congratulated the Roman Christians and thanked God for them. He said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout, same preposition, the whole world. He told them later in his letter that by virtue of their having been buried with Christ by baptism unto death, therefore as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in Newness of life, same preposition. In other words, we find ourselves in indigent circumstances, facing persecution or bereavement or pressured by events beyond our control. We can complain, worry, or rebel, or we can thank God that He's still on the throne 
and that he is too wise to make any mistakes, too loving to be unkind, and too powerful to be thwarted in his sublime purpose. He has some wonderful lesson to teach, some glorious purpose to fulfill, and we'll understand it all better by and by. So we have a word about prayer, then a word about presumption. He says, quench not the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He can be resisted, grieved, and quenched. The unsaved can resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen, in his terrible indictment of the Sanhedrin, said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. An individual believer can grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul warned the Ephesians to grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed under the day of redemption. The word grieve, interestingly enough, is associated with love. You cannot grieve someone who does not love you. You may annoy him, infuriate him, or disgust him, but you cannot grieve him. A church can quench the Holy Spirit. The ascended Lord warned the Ephesian church that their loss of love for him was so serious that unless they repented, unless they experienced a Holy Spirit revival, he would remove their lampstand. Where are all those great churches today that once flourished in Asia Minor? Islam holds empire now in many a place where once revival fires burned. The word quench used here is used literally and figuratively of extinguishing a fire. The word here is in the present continuous sense. In other words, Paul urges the church at Thessalonica to desist, to cease from quenching the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, the corresponding adjective that's used here is the word asbestos. The name we've given to a fire-resisting substance commonly used until recently in places where we wanted to make it difficult or impossible for a fire to get started or spread. We all know churches that were once on fire for God. Souls were being saved, lives were being blessed, then false doctrine took root, squabbles broke out, jealousy reared its head, or immorality was accepted, and the spirit was quenched. He simply left the church. For a while, the usual machinery kept things going, but Ichabod had been written across its doors. The glory had departed from them. He then gives us a word about prophecy. He says that we're not to be disparaging of it. He says, despise not prophesying. We don't need to remember, or we do need to remember, excuse me, however, that the gift of prophecy in the New Testament church was a temporary phenomenon. Paul says so himself in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. He said, whether there be prophecies, they shall cease. Like the gift of tongues and other sign gifts, direct utterance of truth by means of Holy Spirit inspiration and illumination had served its purpose. Now that the New Testament canon is complete, direct prophetic utterance and the gift of the prophet have ceased. The prophets of the New Testament, like the apostles, were necessary to make truth available to scattered congregations before the New Testament was committed to writing and in general circulation. Apostles and prophets are both associated with the foundation of the church in Ephesians 2.20 and Ephesians 3.5, and both have now been removed. The gifts of the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher, however, continue to this day. It was the presence of false prophets in the early church that made the exercise of this gift suspect. Its place has now been taken by preaching. The New Testament prophet received his message by direct illumination of the Holy Spirit. Thus, he was able to make New Testament truth available to those who had no other access to it. The preacher also makes New Testament truth available, but his message is based on the completed revelation contained in the Bible. Paul then has to warn his friends not to be disparaging of prophecy. For prophecy was still a valid gift in those early days of the church. And we would consider it parallel to preaching. Despise not the word of God, the truth of God, when it's given to you. We're not to be disparaging of it. Then he says we're not to be deceived by it likewise. He says, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. In other words, we could say it this way, the Lord is coming, and we would not want to find ourselves gathered with those who pay no heed to the Scriptures. Nor would we want to find ourselves associated with those who have gullibly swallowed the deceptions of false teachers. Paul calls for a proper balance. Teachers are to be tested by Scripture. I'll just make this passing statement. I, I don't have a personal conviction against people putting Scripture up on a, on a, you know, uh, screen and stuff and everything. I don't think the Bible forbids that. But I do think it's a dangerous practice when people start leaving their Bibles at home and coming and reading Scripture only from a screen. Uh, oftentimes that's done, and it has one singular reason, because if they ever asked everybody turning their Bibles to a passage, none of them would read the same. 
But then the second thing, and this is a danger with it, is that people begin to view the preaching of the Word of God as being almost like a Pope speaking ex cathedra, like it's just the relative thoughts of the preacher as opposed to being bounded and grounded on the Word of God. I want people to have a Bible in their hands when they come to church. I want them to have the Word of God set before them. So we see a word about prophecy, and then we see a word about propriety. He says, abstain from all appearance of evil. The word for abstain is the word apeko. The immediate context suggests holding oneself back from false teaching. But evidently the word itself is more comprehensive and includes really any kind of wrong behavior. Paul has already used the word in this letter to warn the Thessalonians to abstain from fornication. Peter used the word in a similar way in 1 Peter 2.11. The word for appearance means from every form of or from every sort or kind of evil. The word for evil is the word paneros. It is used of Satan and of demons. The Lord taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. In other words, we must not allow ourselves to even be placed in a situation where our testimony might be compromised, even inadvertently. Steer clear of evil. That's Paul's rule. 